Chapters 33 through 34 of History of Rome from the Earliest Times down to 476 AD by Robert F. Pennell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 33 Caesar's Operations in Egypt, Asia, Africa, and Spain. Pompey, in his flight from Pharsalia, hastened by the shortest way to the sea, and, seeing a vessel weighing anchor, embarked with a few companions who had accompanied him in his flight. He went to Mytilene, and from there to Egypt, hoping to obtain an asylum with young Ptolemy. But he was seized upon his arrival and beheaded. 28 September 48. Just before his death, Pompey had completed his 58th year. Though he had some great and good qualities, he hardly deserved the surname of great. He was certainly a good soldier, and is said to have excelled in all athletic sports, but he fell short of being a first-class general. He won great successes in Spain, and more especially in the East. But for these he was, no doubt, partly indebted to what others had already done. Of the gifts which make a good statesman, he had really none. He was too weak and irresolute to choose a side and stand by it. Pitted against such a man as Caesar, he could not but fail. But to his credit be it said that in a corrupt time he never used his opportunities for plunder and extortion. End of quote. Meanwhile, Caesar, pursuing his victory with indefatigable activity, set sail for Egypt. Upon his arrival, the head of his enemy was brought to him. He turned from the sight with tears in his eyes. The murderers now saw what would be their fate. Ptolemy was at variance with his sister, the famous Cleopatra. Caesar sided with her. The inhabitants of Alexandria revolted and besieged Caesar in the palace. But with a handful of soldiers, he bravely baffled their attacks, setting fire to the neighboring buildings. He escaped to his ships. Afterward, he returned and wreaked vengeance upon the Alexandrians, establishing Cleopatra upon the throne. Satisfied with this vengeance, Caesar left Egypt and went to Pontus, where Pharnaces, son of Mithridates, was inciting a revolt against Rome. Caesar attacked and defeated him at Zella in 47, with a rapidity rendered proverbial by his words. Vini vidi visi, I came, I saw, I conquered. He now passed quickly down the Hellespont, and had landed in Italy before it was known that he had left Pontus. During his absence from the capital, there had been some minor disturbances, but the mass of the citizens were firmly attached to him. Few could distrust the genius and fortune of the irresistible conqueror. 
in October of 48, he had been made dictator a second time and appointed tribune for life. Caesar's return in September 47 was marked by no proscription. He insisted that all debts should be paid and the rights of property respected. He restored quiet, and after a brief stay of three months prepared to transport his army to Africa. The army was in Campania, but discontented and mutinous because of not receiving the expected privilege of pillage and plunder. They refused to move until certain promised rewards were received. The Tenth Legion broke out into open revolt and marched from Campania to Rome to obtain their rights. Caesar collected them in the Campus Martins and asked them to state their grievances. They demanded their discharge. I grant it, citizens. Quirites, said the imperator. Heretofore he had always addressed them as fellow soldiers, and the implied rebuke was so keen that a reaction at once began, and they all begged to be received again into his service. He accepted them, telling them that lands had been allotted to each soldier out of the Arga Publicus, or out of his own estates. Africa must now be subdued. Since the defeat and death of Curio, King Juba had found no one to dispute his authority. Around him now rallied all the followers of Pompey. Metellus, Scipio, Cato, Labienus, Afranius, Petrarius, and the slain general's two sons, Sectus and Gnaeus Pompeius. Utica was made their headquarters. Here Cato collected thirteen legions of troops of miscellaneous character. Raids were made upon Sicily, Sardinia, and the coast of Italy. Caesar's officers, if captured, were put to death without mercy. Cicero alone of the old Pompeian party protested against such cruelties. He remained in Italy, was denounced by them as a traitor, and charged with currying favor of the dictator. Caesar sailed from Lilibaeum, December 19, effected a landing near Leptis, and maintained himself in a fortified position until he formed useful alliances among the Maritanians. Many Roman residents in the province came to him indignant at Metellus, Scipio's promise to Juba to give the province to him in case of success. Many deserters also came in, enraged that precedence was given to Juba over Scipio in councils of war. But the enemy's army was kept full of new recruits sent from Utica by Cato. For three months Caesar failed to bring on the desired engagement. Scipio had learned caution from Pompey's experience at Pharsalia. Finally, at Thapsus, a hundred miles southeast of Carthage, April 4, 46, the armies met. Caesar's men were so enthusiastic that they rushed to the charge with one impulse. There was no real battle, but rather a slaughter. Officers and men fled for their lives. Scipio was intercepted in his flight and slain. 
Juba and Petrarius fled together, but finding their retreat cut off, engaged, it is said, in mortal combat. When the first Petrarius fell, the other threw himself on his own sword. Labienus and the two sons of Pompey managed to escape to Spain. Afranius was captured and executed. Cato, when he heard of the defeat, retired to his chamber in Utica and committed suicide. Thus ended the African campaign. On his return from Africa, Caesar celebrated four triumphs on four successive days, one over the Gauls, one over Ptolemy of Egypt, one over Pharnaces, and one over Juba. He gratified his armed followers with liberal gifts and pleased the people by his great munificence. They were feasted at a splendid banquet, at which were twenty-two thousand tables, each table having three couches, and each couch three persons. Then followed shows in the circus and theater, combats of wild beasts and gladiators, in which the public especially delighted. Honors were now heaped upon Caesar without stint. A thanksgiving of forty days was decreed. His statue was placed in the capital. Another was inscribed to Caesar, the demagogue. A golden chair was allotted to him in the Senate House. The name of the fifth month, Quintilius, of the Roman calendar was changed to Julius July. He was appointed dictator for two years and later for life. He received for three years the office of censor, which enabled him to appoint senators and to be guardian of manners and morals. He had already been made tribune in 48 for life and Pontifex Maximus in 63. In a word, he was king in everything excepting name. Caesar's most remarkable and durable reform at this period was the revision of the calendar. The Roman method of reckoning time had been so inaccurate that now their seasons were more than two months behind. Caesar established a calendar, which, with slight changes, is still in use. It went in operation January 1st, 45. He employed Sosthenes, an Alexandrian astronomer, to superintend the reform. While Sosthenes was at work on the calendar, Caesar purified the Senate. Many who were guilty of extortion and corruption were expelled, and the vacancies filled with persons of merit. Meanwhile, matters in Spain were not satisfactory. After the Battle of Pharsalia, Cassius Longimus, Tribonius, and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus had been sent to govern the province. They could not agree. The soldiers became mutinous. To Spain flocked all who were dissatisfied with Roman affairs. The remnant of Scipio's African army rested there in its wanderings. Thus, Libanus and Pompey's two sons managed to collect an army as numerous as that which had been defeated at Thapsus. There were thirteen legions in all. Caesar saw that he must make one more struggle. He set out for the province accompanied by his nephew Octavius, afterward the Emperor Augustus, 
and by his trusted friend and officer decimus brutus the struggle in spain was protracted for several months but the decisive battle was fought at munda seventeen march forty five on the guadalquivir near cordova the forces were well matched the advantage in position was on the side of the enemy the battle was stubbornly fought most of it hand to hand with short swords so equal was the struggle so doubtful at one time the issue that caesar himself sprang from his horse seized the standard and rallied a wavering legion finally labienus was seen to gallop across the field it was thought he was fleeing panic seized his troops they broke and ran thirty thousand were slain including three thousand roman knights and labienus himself Gnaeus Pompey shortly after lost his life, but Sectus lived for a number of years. Caesar tarried in Spain, regulating affairs until late in the autumn, when he returned to Rome and enjoyed another triumph over the Iberians, the Spaniards. The triumph was followed, as usual, by games and festivals, which kept the populace in a fever of delight and admiration cato metellus scipio marcus portius cato utensis footnote cato the younger called utensis on account of his death at utica in ninety five to forty six end of footnote was the great-grandson of cato the censor he was the last of the romans of the old school like his more famous ancestor, he was frugal and austere in his habits, upright, unselfish, and incorruptible. But he was a fanatic who could not be persuaded to relinquish his views on any subject. As a general, he was a failure, having neither taste nor genius for military exploits. He held various offices at Rome as quaestor and praetor, but when candidate for the consulship he was defeated because he declined to win the votes by bribery and other questionable methods then in vogue quintus caecilius metellus pius belonged to the illustrious family of the scipios by birth and to that of the metelli by adoption he was one of the most unjust and dishonest of the senators that opposed caesar he was the father-in-law of Pompey, by whom he was made a pliant tool against the great conqueror. Chapter 34. Murder of Caesar. Upon his return from Spain, Caesar granted pardon to all who had fought against him, the most prominent of whom were Gaius Cassius, Marcus Brutus, and Cicero. He increased the number of the Senate to nine hundred. He cut off the corn grants, which nursed the city mob in idleness. He sent out impoverished men to colonize old cities. He rebuilt Corinth and settled 80,000 Italians on the site of Carthage. As a censor of morals, he was very rigid. His own habits were marked by frugality. The rich young patricians were forbidden to be carried about in litters as had been the custom. Libraries were formed, 
Eminent physicians and scientists were encouraged to settle in Rome. The harbor of Ostia was improved, and a road constructed from the Adriatic to the Tyrrhenian Sea over the Pennines. A temple to Mars was built, and an immense amphitheater was erected at the foot of the Tarpeian Rock. In the midst of this useful activity he was basely murdered. Cassius Longinus and Marcus Junius Brutus were the leaders in the conspiracy to effect Caesar's death. Cassius, the former lieutenant of Crassus, had shown great bravery in the war with the Parthians. At Pharsalia he fought on the side of Pompey, but was afterward pardoned by Caesar. He was married to his sister Brutus, the latter nephew and son-in-law of Cato, and also fought at Pharsalia against Caesar, and also been pardoned by him. Cassius, it was said, hated the tyrant and Brutus' tyranny. These conspirators were soon joined by persons of all parties, and men who had fought against each other in the civil war now joined hands. Cicero was not taken into the plot. He was of advanced years, and all who knew him must have felt that he would never consent to the taking of the life of one who had been so lenient towards his conquered enemies. On the morning of the Ides, 15th of March, in 44, as Caesar entered the Senate and took his seat, he was approached by the conspirators, headed by Tullius Simba, prayed for the pardon of his exiled brother. And while the rest joined him in the request, he, grasping Caesar's hand, kissed his head and breast, as Caesar attempted to rise, Simba dragged his cloak from his shoulders, and Casca, who was standing behind his chair, stabbed him in the neck. The first blow was struck, and the whole pack fell upon their noble victim. Cassius stabbed him in the face, and Marcus Brutus in the groin. He made no further resistance, but wrapping his gown over his head, and the lower part of his body, he fell at the base of Pompey's statue, which was drenched with the martyr's blood. Great tumult and commotion followed, and in their alarm most of the senators fled. It was two days before the Senate met, the conspirators, meanwhile, having taken refuge in the capital. Public sentiment was against them. Many of Caesar's old soldiers were in the city, and many more were flocking there from all directions. The funeral oration of Mark Antony over the remains produced a deep impression upon the crowd. They became so excited when the speaker removed the dead man's toga and disclosed his wounds that, instead of allowing the body to be carried to the campus Martius for burial, they raised a funeral pile in the forum, and there burned it. The crowd then dispersed in troops, broke into and destroyed the houses of the conspirators. Brutus and Cassius fled from the city for their lives, followed by other murderers. As a general, Caesar was probably superior to all others, excepting possibly Hannibal, 
he was especially remarkable for the fertility of his resources it has been said that napoleon taught his enemies how to conquer him but caesar's enemies never learned how to conquer him because he had not a mere system of tactics but a new stratagem for every emergency he was however not only a great general but a preeminent statesman and second only to cicero in eloquence as a historian he wrote in a style that was clear vigorous and also simple most of his writings are lost but of those that remain cicero said that fools might try to improve on them but no wise man could attempt it end of chapter thirty four